0: Jesus is not an ordinary man. In Luke chapter 11, where where I have you turned, after Jesus cast out a demon, he has this, um, this accounting. In verse 14 of Luke 11, listen to what it says. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. And some of them said... He casts out demons by Beelzebub, or Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do you, do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, we can stop at verse 20, actually, um, What's going on here? Jesus, in the midst of being who he is, a healer, being who he is, one who has authority over demons. Jesus, being who he is, he knows the thoughts and intents of people's hearts. Jesus did not come to put on a show. Jesus is no one's dancing, singing frog. For instance, in the Gospel of Mark, after Jesus cast out demons and was healing people for an entire day, he went into solitude to pray, and in the morning, his disciples came looking for him, and they said to him, everyone's looking for you. His reply was this, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. He didn't come to entertain people. He he didn't come so that someone could say, hey, I saw this guy, and he could do these really neat things. Let's go see what show he'll put on today. Jesus, after feeding the 5,000 in the Gospel of John, it records his response to a group of people that were seeking him. And he says in John 6, verses 26 and 27, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, Not because you saw signs, signs that authenticate my claim to be a Messiah. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his Seal. Jesus didn't perform miracles to wow the crowds. He was not simply a a stand up comic or one who would draw people to himself so that they could say, hey, look at that, how powerful he is. There was an intent, there was a a reason behind the miracles, the signs that he performed. The author of Hebrews speaks of that in Hebrews chapter 2. It says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? It was declared declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard him. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Jesus in his power, when he demonstrated his power, he didn't do it for a show. For instance, you'll remember when Jesus was in the, the... the wilderness, tempted by Satan. He said, if you're really the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now, Jesus was hungry. He had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. That would have kind of made good sense for him to feed himself at that point. But he would not demonstrate his power at the behest of Satan. That's not how it works. The signs and miracles and wonders that Jesus performed were always with the intent of revealing who he really is. Who he really is. What do you want from Jesus? It's a really good question. What do you want from Jesus? Do you know that Jesus is not Santa Claus? You don't crawl up on his lap, whisper into his ear, and whisper your Christmas wish. This is not who Jesus is. In John chapter 10, you're in Luke 11, take a look at John chapter 10, the next book over to your right. Jesus tells us very much why he came. Over and over, it is revealed for us why Jesus came. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, take a look, please, at verse 9. This will be on the screen as well. I am the door, he says. Well, what is a door? An entrance into something. And we don't really think in the the culture of the time, so we're not really thinking about sheep and sheepfolds and all of these kinds of things. But if you know anything about sheep and sheepfolds and shepherds, here's what they would do they would have a place in their field where they had set up a, a gated portion, probably with rocks, stones. They've got it all around so that the sheep come in, and there's only one way in and only one way out. And during the night, while they slept, the shepherd would sleep across that one opening so as to keep the riffraff out and the sheep in. I'm the one who lets you in. I'm the one who let you out. I am the door. This is what Jesus said. I am the door, verse 9. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to give life. In John chapter 5, you'll see this on the screen behind me, in verses 39 and 40, Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus came to give people real life, eternal life not trinkets. You know, you can turn on your radios and you can turn on your televisions and find people that tell you that Jesus will offer you all the trinkets of the world. And they gather a mass of people to follow after them. It's called a wealth, health, prosperity gospel. You don't have to know it by that name, but as soon as someone starts telling you all the great things that will happen in your life if you'll just follow Jesus, the Bible doesn't say that. Everyone that knows Jesus deals with all the same nonsense and difficulty and pain that everyone else deals with. We have backaches and headaches and neckaches. We have heart problems and lung problems and kidney issues. All kinds of problems. Financial woes, relational woes, trials and temptation come the way of every human being whether we know Jesus or whether we do not know Jesus. Jesus doesn't take away your owie. And Jesus doesn't make sure that all of your bills are paid. There have been many that have not been able to pay their mortgage and have lost their houses. Jesus didn't come to provide you with a house on earth. Jesus came to provide you with a house in heaven. Jesus came to give life. Real life, abundant life, eternal life, not trinkets. Take a look, please, now at our main text, and we're only going to spend a few minutes there. Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. On the the religious calendar, we find ourselves on Palm Sunday, or the day of the triumphal entry, because this Friday we would find ourselves on the religious calendar at Good Friday, and next Sunday at Resurrection Sunday, or what the world calls Easter. And as part of our meditation this morning, we will include our thoughts on the triumphal entry, not so much to follow the religious calendar, but more so to help us as we prepare our hearts and minds to celebrate the Lord's Supper and to prepare our hearts and minds for Good Friday and for Resurrection Sunday. In Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, we read um, several verses, I think starting in verse 33 for our opening scripture reading. But we're going to start in verse 28 to get the context here. And Luke 19, 28, the Bible says this, But when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain, or the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, uh, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. Surprising, isn't it? Jesus knew where the the donkey would be that no one had ever sat on. It's not surprising to us if we know who he is. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe. He knows everything. Verse 33. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to him, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their clothes on, Uh, Cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is a divine appointment, this whole thing God had set up in advance. We know that there is prophetic information in both the book of Daniel and in the book of Zechariah concerning this event. So so we know that this was predetermined. This was going to take place. What we also want to notice is that um, Jesus in this procession, as as he heads into Jerusalem, this enthronement, the people line the streets. And in doing so, according to the the multitude of the accounts from from all four Gospels, what we notice is that they're they're throwing clothes on the, the ground in front of him. That is showing submission. They're carrying about palm branches in their hands, that is saying, you're victorious. And they're making this proclamation of who Jesus is, the King. Jesus is the King. They, they're recognizing on this divinely appointed day, the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. They're unveiling who he really is. Now, it tells us, gives a little clue in, in Luke's Gospel that One of the preemptors for their proclamation is that they they saw the mighty works that he had done. They saw how powerful he was. They saw how magnificent he is, how different he is. And assuredly, amongst this multitude, there are those who really trusted Jesus. Wouldn't you say? They're proclaiming this messianic saying. They're saying, this is Jesus. This is the king. This is the long-awaited messiah. Undoubtedly, there are many believers amongst this grouping. But I also might say there, there might have been some, some among that group that, that were not so. Now, there's contention in the scholarly world about, you know, well, this isn't the same group that was there at the end of the week. You know, this group was from Galilee, and that group was from Jerusalem. And, and I'm just going to say, I, I really can't, I can't say, the Bible doesn't say that specifically. And I also say, like, when there's a throng of people, in Jerusalem there there might be some from Jerusalem and there might be some from out of town so i'm thinking and i think that i'm on safe ground saying this at the end of the week the crowd that was there that cried out crucify him crucify him that that were worked up by the scribes and pharisees and sadducees there may have been some overlap maybe not everyone maybe some that really believed that they 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 hightailed it out of there by that point I really don't know but I think one of the questions that that is to rightly asked from this scene proclamation here and we know a proclamation later that is contrary to this what is genuine faith what does it really mean to know Jesus and really what do you think of Jesus I want you to turn to another passage of Scripture, please, in the the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Now, in John, chapter 2, we have Jesus' first recorded miracle. It took place at the wedding feast of Cana. You'll remember that he turned the water into wine at the request of his mother. And then the next scene, Jesus cleanses the temple. which surely made him popular when he did that. And in the final scene of John chapter 2, which is what I want for us to read, we have this section, and it is intriguing. I find it to be intriguing. In verse 23, look at what it says. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. If the chapter ended there, that would be really cool. It ends on a high note. And we're all rejoicing. It does go on, however, and it says in verse 24, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. What? What is this? You've got people that are excited about him. People that see his power and glory and say, yes, I believe him. And Jesus, because he knows man, he doesn't just hear words, and he doesn't just see visual things. He knows the heart of man. He realized that that was a superficial superficial faith. It was not real. It was not in who he was. It was in what he did. This is important, folks. There are so many people that go through life And it just seems that they have this loose connection, a loose connection with Jesus. And because of something that happened when they were 4, 10, 15, 30, 25, whatever the age was, they did this thing, they prayed this prayer, they they walked down an aisle, they they saw a track, and, and they feel comfortable that that event is sufficient, and now they just live their lives completely in opposition to a a real demonstration of knowing Jesus. Well, Jesus knows. He knows whether we know him. And more so, more importantly, he knows whether he knows us. What do I mean, does he know us? Well, the Bible makes some statements, and and they're rather intriguing. We looked at one a few weeks back in the book of Galatians. Paul is writing about, you, you know, don't, Don't go back to the weak and beggarly things. Like before you knew Jesus, and then he says, or rather, came to be known of him. What do you mean? He knows everybody. That's true. He does know everybody. But there's a knowledge of people that is beyond, I know what you think, say, and do. I know you intimately in relationship. And that's the knowledge that Paul's talking about in Galatians four, and that's the knowledge really that, that I want to direct your attention to in, in the book of Second Timothy. Now Brian covered this a, a couple, you know, a month or so, two months ago. In Second Timothy chapter two and verse nineteen, as you remember the, the, the vessels that are in the house, there's some to honor, some to dishonor. You remember that part of, of Second Timothy? Well, there's a statement that is a quotation from the book of Numbers chapter sixteen. And it says this, the Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows those who are his. It also says the same in uh, Nahum 1, seven, where it says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Take refuge. What does that mean? I've got no other safe place. You're it. the one who takes shelter in him. Jesus came to give trinkets? No, life. Have you come to find shelter in him? Have you come to take refuge in him? Take a look at John chapter 10. You're in chapter 2. Take a look at John 10 again. we were already in verses 9 and 10. Jesus makes a, another I am statement in the Gospel of John, chapter 10. In, in verse 9, remember, he said, I'm the door. And then as he moves a little further, he, he uses another I am statement in verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Now in verse 27, he takes it one step further. In verse 27 of John 10, he says this. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. What does it say next? And they follow me. I know them, and they follow me. Okay? This is important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, another statement about God knowing us particularly Jesus knowing us or God knowing us, it says in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 8, this is on the screen behind me, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. You get that? Known by God. This intimate knowledge, this relationship, this unshakable, unwavering relationship, this eternal life. Jesus came to to give life. And the way he gives life is this union with God. You'll remember in John chapter 17, Jesus said, "Uh, this is eternal life, that they may know me, uh, thee, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Knowledge of God, to be known by God, is a relationship that results in eternal life. Jesus is not a genie in a bottle. He is not a dancing, singing frog. He is not Santa Claus. Jesus came to give you something that no one, nothing else can give for you. He came to give you life. And the way he gives that life is through knowledge of him, through his knowing you. To know him is to love him. To love him, according to 1 Corinthians 8, is to be known by him for love for god is a result of his gracious gift of the spirit the bible says in first john chapter 4 in verse 19 we love because he first loved us in some versions we love him because he first loved us in romans chapter 5 in verse 5 it says god's love has been poured out into our hearts through the holy spirit who has been given to us see The Bible tells us that love, real love for God, is a result of God's working in us. His work, not our work. Take a look, please. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. God's saving work in people's lives produces a hunger and thirst for righteousness see that in Matthew 5. A love for him, which we just saw in 1 Corinthians 8. A love for God's people, you can find that in 1 John chapters 3 and 4. And a desire to see his word demonstrated in our lives. Before we read the text in in Matthew 7, I want you to think about this statement. When we come to the end of our lives are we going to stand there before our judge and stake as our claim to why he should let us enter in of all the good things we've done? Is that what we stake our claim on? Here, God, I've done this for you, and I've done that for you. You should let me in. Is that how we're going to be at that place? Well, not according to Scripture, certainly not. Look at what it says in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we do this for you and and cast out demons in your name? And, And didn't many money works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you apart from me you workers of lawlessness the question is not what have you done for jesus the question is what has jesus done for you it's not what toy will jesus give me what peace in this life what what treasure in this life what What happy experience in this life will Jesus give me? But rather, what has Jesus accomplished on my behalf? Jesus is not a genie in a bottle. He is not a dancing frog for our entertainment. And he certainly is not Santa Claus trying to give us our most sweetest Christmas wish. Jesus is God made flesh. Jesus is perfectly fulfilled every demand of the law. He, he, in a righteous way, met every demand of the law on my behalf. He laid down his life as a perfect sacrifice for my sin. He rose victorious over my sin, over death, over Satan. He ascended triumphantly to the right hand of God the Father, where he sits until his enemies are made his footstool. And Jesus, I I want to tell you this and declare with great passion and certainty, Jesus will come again. He will come again, and he's going to set everything right. He will restore all things. Jesus is the creator Sustainer and Redeemer. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Him? Are you known by Him? How do you know if you're known by Him? Well, we looked at a couple of ways. First of all, you love Him. How does that, that love arrive? Because God's Spirit is within me, and the Spirit of God bears witness with my spirit that I'm God's child, right? And I cry out by the Spirit, Abba! Father, I know you. You, I'm intimately yours forever. And John 10 says, those that are his sheep hear his voice because he knows them, they know him, and they, what? Follow him. Follow him. Do you know him? We celebrate this morning who Jesus is. He is our refuge and our strength. Is he yours? When, when you stake everything on your life on one thing, what is it? When you look to the end of your life and you stand before a judge, what do you stake your claim to stand there with boldness? Shouldn't, shouldn't a believer ever stand before the judge ashamed? Why? Why should a believer never stand ashamedly before the judge? Because we don't stand there and say, hey, I want to tell you all the great things that I have done. We stand there, not robed in our righteousness, accrued by us through the many good deeds we've done. We stand there under one circumstance. We can stand there boldly because we are robed in the righteousness of Christ alone. It comes through faith in him. What are you staking your claim? on your eternal life. Jesus didn't come to give you a house on earth. He came to give you a house in heaven. The question is, have you, have you come to this place that he is, he is everything the Bible describes him to be for you? Or is he something else? Do you wish that He were something else? I mentioned this previously, but that, that really is the, the undermining of of the shack you know that the movie and book the shack it's all about a guy that doesn't think the way the bible describes god is is, is adequate god the father is not really um Warm and fuzzy enough, so I have to make him into something else. And God, the Son, isn't isn't great enough, so I've got to make him into something else. God, the Spirit, isn't what the Bible portrays him to be. He's some sensual thing. Like the, it, when we when we compare the way that people portray what God has to say, and we look and compare it to what the Bible says, if we see a difference, which one are we going to reject? The whole world can be made a liar. God tells the truth. Right? This is, we find our solace and understanding of who God is in the scriptures. Do you know him? Do you know him? Does he know you? How do we know whether we know him? We've trusted Christ alone. His spirit bears witness with our spirit. That he alone, he alone Is our Savior. Let's take a moment and pray together. Father, we need you, and as we consider these texts of Scripture, we pray that you would enable us to see the truth the truth about you, the truth about your Son, the truth of your Word, and the truth about ourselves. We pray that there would not be a person in here that is relying upon anything else. Than Jesus Christ for their salvation. We ask that you'd help us to recognize if we have some other fascination that is competing with who Jesus is. Help us to know him in truth, according to the truth of your word and by your spirit. We pray that you would reveal in us the reality of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name.